and welcome to The Mock Review with Ben and Drew. I'm Ben Garmo. And I'm Drew Evans. Well, Drew, we have an episode today that we always really look forward to. We've been fortunate for four years in a row now to get an opportunity to talk to the case committee chair for two episodes. Of course, that's been Neil Shewitt. For two episodes, that's been uh, Mike Gelfand. And for the fifth year in a row, we're getting an opportunity to chat with the case committee chairs. There's two of them this year, and that would be Sam and Elise. We're going to kick to their interview in just a couple of minutes here. Uh, But before we do that, Drew, we just kind of wanted to hop on the mics and chat for a minute. Because I know you've actually got something really exciting in the hopper that that you wanted to share with the community. So, so what's going on with with you and mock trial that's coming up soon? All right. Well, I I know that in recent years, most of the mock trial announcements that I have are typically having to do with either the high school world or most recently in the law school world. But I'm excited to give an announcement that actually applies to the AMTA community. Um, <laughs> basically, the Tulane undergraduate as well as the law school are going to be combining to host a invitational this January. Um, myself, a kid named Jacob, and a girl named Kaylin, um, the three of us are going to be kind of co-running uh, it, helping out with it. All three of us have run undergraduate tournaments before, so we're really excited to get to be involved in it again. Um, probably, I don't. I think we're just far enough removed that we've forgotten how painful and awful it is, but, you know... <laughs> We're doing it again. Um, but basically, the tournament is going to be on January 14th and 15th. Uh, it's going to be $200 registration fees. And I'm announcing it here because we really do want to have a, for the most part, first come, first served type of approach with it. So if you're listening to this, if you're looking for a tournament in the like early January time, go ahead and send us an email. You can email Jacob. His email is jsmith115 at Tulane.edu. So that's J-S-M-I-T-H-115 at Tulane.edu. Shoot him an email, say that your team is interested. We're happy to extend invites while we have room. Um, And we're really, really excited about it. We're planning on using the Tulane Law uh, trial rooms. We have some really nice spaces. We're going to have some great judges. It's going to be well run. We're hoping to have a nice reception for everyone just because we're being sponsored by the law school and we have law school <laughs> money to do that. So nice things to come, but really, really excited about it. Excited to be getting back involved in the running of invitationals. And if you're looking for a January invite, we hope that you guys will join us. Well, something tells me that you're not going to struggle too hard to get some teams willing to come to New Orleans in January. Yeah, no, I, and I think that's a good thought. If we didn't already have an invite committed, I would, I would already be looking at hotels and trying to find out if the dollar taco dollar margarita <laughs> place that I went to as a 2L is still there. Um, who knows? But no, that's super exciting. And especially January, you know, Amto could really use more January tournaments. I think that there's a fair amount, but probably not quite enough. And everybody's always looking to, to compete. Um, one sort of thought question that I have for you before we move to our conversation with Sam and Elise, you know, I'm recruiting judges for Charm City. I talked to other people who are recruiting judges. And I know, and I had this experience talking to Justin Matarisi and Empire as well, um, in-person judge recruitment right now is kind of tough. I've heard some Mm -hmm. different types of speculation for why that is. My personal perspective is I think everybody got used to online mock trial and half of the judges or two thirds of the judges could keep their camera off. And now it's like, wait, I have to drive. I have to park. I have to go do this thing. I have to put on (laughs) pants, like, you know, all these things. And and judges kind of got used to the online mock trial world. But 
what are you thinking in terms of judge recruitment and, and using the local community to, to uh, staff judges at a tournament like that? So let me start by saying, screw you for raining on my parade. I've been really excited about this. I don't want to think about judge recruitment right now. Like, oh my yeah. God, what the, the worst part of running an invitational. Um, raining on your parade. Welcome oh to my God. student's world. Very true. Well, I will, I will admit, um, you know, we have given it some thought actually. And I think that you're totally right, Ben. I think that's the big barriers that people have gotten used to online. And also just, it's always kind of a lot to ask of people. I think that our hope is that we have a lot of good contacts. Um, you know, the law school mock trial team itself knows tons of different attorneys in the area. We have tons of alumni in the area that are lawyers. So we're really hoping to tap that a lot. And then um, I think the nice thing about it being hosted at Tulane Law is that it is right in the middle of the city. So that is going to be really nice for judges in terms of their ability to get to campus. It's not like they're driving out in the middle of nowhere. Um, for most of them, it's probably a very short drive or they can take the streetcar, which is a thing in New Orleans, um, or many of the other ways to get uh, to campus pretty easily. So I'm optimistic, but um, you know, check back in with me in, in December and I'll probably be feeling a little different. <laughs> yeah. And, and I'll just say, to be clear, as, as we as we sort of wrap this thought up, like I, it's not that nobody's interested in judging mock trial right now. I think we're just kind of retraining people. You know, yeah, people got I've used seen. to virtual and we kind of got to recultivate that community of people who like to come out and, and judge mock trial rounds and stuff like that. But we're getting there. I'm sure that in a year or two, we'll be back to, you know, some semblance of what we're used to. So that's super exciting. Drew, keep us posted, obviously, on how it's going. Um, any other thoughts or anything before we move to our conversation with Sam and Elise? Nope, just excited to get chatting about this case. So looking forward to seeing, well, getting to speak with both Sam and Elise uh, for sure. Definitely had yeah. a lot of questions and I'm excited to get them answered. Yeah, no, I totally agree. We've been looking forward to this episode for just a little while, really, since the case <laughs> came out. We're super grateful to both of them for taking time. So thanks, everyone, for listening. We're going to take a quick break. We will be right back for our conversation with Civil Case Committee Chairs, Sam and Elise. Welcome back to The Mock Review. We are thrilled to have two fantastic guests on the show today. Uh, our guests on The Mock Review are Sam Jahangir and Elise Wilson. They are the Civil Case Committee co-chairs. They are responsible for the committee that produced this year's AMTA case. We are thrilled to have both of them, both of them on the show. And so I want to introduce each one to all of you. Uh, I'll start with Sam. If you're interested in hearing more about Sam's background, his origin story, you can go all the way back to episode 34 when Sam joined the podcast back in 2020 to talk about his role with AMTA and everything that was going on at the time. Sam coaches at the uh, most recent national runner-up, that'd be the University of Chicago. Uh, he's a member of the AMTA board of directors and a great friend of the show. So Sam, thanks so much for coming back on the Mock Review to chat with us. Happy to be here, guys. Yeah, and we're happy to have you on. And, and with Sam, we've got Elise Wilson. Uh, Elise is a candidate member of the AMTA Board of Directors. Elise has done a lot in mock trial over the last several years. Elise competed in AMTA at the University of North Carolina. She competed in law school at Emory University, Emory Law School, and won the Palmetto State Classic there as a competitor. Elise, as I mentioned, she's a candidate member of the AMTA board. She's been coaching at Georgia Tech since 2018. And relevant to today's conversation, she's got a lot of experience as a case author. She wrote the 2021 All-Star Bracket Challenge case, which is a law school competition, and has written cases for North Carolina High School, as well as Empire Mock Trial. Elise, it's really great to have you on. Thanks for making some time to chat with us. 
Thank you for having me. So, Elise, before we start talking about the case, you know, Sam has already gotten the opportunity to ask to answer this question in, in his episode several years ago. But we always like to start by asking our guests about their origin story, about how they got involved in mock trial. So can you go all the way back to the beginning and tell us what your mock trial origin story was like? Yeah. So I was thinking about this question. Um, I was actually bitten by a radioactive gavel (laughs) and uh, it turned me into a big nerd. Um, No. So um, basically, I started competing my senior year of high school. My friend Caroline Turvo was putting together a delegation of students to compete at the National Judicial Competition, which is a YMCA hosted competition in Chicago. they have a moot court competition there. I had done moot court. I really wanted to be on the moot court team. And when I signed up, she was like, actually, I'm going to put you on mock trial. And I was like, okay, sure. Went with it. So we go to Chicago and um, I am playing the defendant and I am uh, opening on the prosecution. And my first round, I'm an attorney and I just completely bombed the whole thing. I was very unprepared. Um, we were a student run high school mock trial team, which probably shouldn't be a thing. And it was so bad. It was so horrible that um, we actually had the student who uh, I was supposed to direct um, take up my attorney role for the rest of the competition uh, at both, you know, the team's unanimous decision and at my behest, because I was so scared of ever attorneying again after I just completely bombed this first round. So I really liked witnessing, thankfully. And with, you know, these really two uh, awesome, more prepared attorneys, double attorneying now, we ended up actually taking third place in the competition. And um, I ended up deciding that I really liked mock trial. Uh, It actually ended up being really ironic because obviously now I am a practicing attorney and the guy who took up my attorney role when I couldn't handle it actually ended up being an all-American witness uh, many years later. Um, So I went on to UNC Uh, I auditioned for the mock trial team and obviously got on and they put me back in an attorney role, even though I was incredibly, incredibly, incredibly nervous about it. And, you know, it took until probably my sophomore year of college before I was even remotely comfortable, uh, or good at being an attorney. Um, but you know, I think it is, it is a really good reminder for anybody out there who is a younger mocker and who is struggling that if you put in enough work. And if you memorize all of the rules of evidence verbatim, you can end up succeeding in mock trial, even if you completely bomb your first round. Uh, I've been competing and involved in the community ever since. And uh, yeah, now I'm here. I'm a practicing attorney. Uh, Right now I do aviation, uh, premises, trucking, and first party insurance defense law. And obviously I'm also a candidate on the EMTA board. Well, Elise, I think that that is about as thorough as you can get when it comes to a mock trial background. So thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I think that obviously why we are so excited to have both of you on is to talk about this year's case. And I think that I want to start with just kind of where even the idea for it came from. Um, So can you guys, and maybe we just heard from Elise, so Sam, I'll go to you first. Like, who was the origin of this idea? to have a plane crash, to have, you know, both kind of key witnesses die? Like, what was the motivation behind it? Or where did that idea come from? Sure, I'm happy to take first crack. So I mean, to take a step back from the question, it's always good to go through how exactly the committee works when it comes to picking a case topic. So 
uh, when Elise and I took over the ship, that is the civil case committee, we kept the same process that um, had always been in place. We solicited for potential case proposals, um, many of which, of course, come from those who are on the committee, but we also get ideas from those in the community, um, other board members or folks who just reach out and text or send an email or stop you in a hall with an idea for a case they've got. <laughs> um, we gathered all of those ideas and we spoke, of course, as a committee to see where folks' interests were and what they were leaning towards. And I'll say, with regards to the committee that we had this year, there was a lot of support for a more expert-heavy, a more technical side case. So those were definitely the proposals we were looking at. Um, as for how we zeroed in on a plane crash case, I mean, part of it was there was a lot of support from the committee on such an idea, but I definitely have to turn it to Elise because, as she said in her bio, she's an aviation lawyer. So as you can imagine, she had a little bit of a say in terms of ideas on that front. Yeah, so I was really excited to write a plane crash case when Jonathan initially asked me if I would uh, co-chair the committee. I was like, I want to write a plane crash case. Um, this proposal that I came up with came from, uh, so as y'all might learn in this interview, I'm a really weird person. <laughs> and I went down a YouTube rabbit hole one night of listening to Mayday calls from like planes that either crashed or had emergencies or anything like that. And I listened to this one mayday call from somebody who, you know, was a VFR pilot in IFR conditions. And it was the most harrowing thing I've ever heard. It absolutely terrified me to my core. And uh, this pilot ended up being okay. Like he landed the plane successfully. He went out and got his IFR certification later. It was fine. Um, but listening to the panning in his voice just really made an impression on me. And I'm like, I want to write a mock trial case about that. Um, and so I proposed it to the committee. And, you know, we went through a lot of refining to try and get the topic into something that would be interesting and fun, even if you don't always want to call an expert. Um, though it ended up being a pretty expert heavy case. Uh, but yeah, uh, it just came from me being weird and <laughs> going down YouTube rabbit holes. <laughs> Hey, we have all been there for sure. Um, so something I kind of wanted to like quickly fill up, follow up with you guys on is the the expert heavy nature of this case. Both of you kind of alluded to it. And I'll say that as someone that um, like when I first read it, I really I noticed that. And it's not even just that they are expert heavy, but it's that a lot of them are really pretty technical um, and talking about, you know, how engines work and like all these kind of very nuanced things that are, at least to me, pretty different than a lot of the other cases. And you both said that, um, or Sam, I know you mentioned that there was a push for a more expert heavy style. Why do you think that is? Or what do you think are kind of the advantages and disadvantages of having it be so technical um, to the point that my guess is that a lot of people are doing a little bit of background research, trying to understand a little more about planes and how they work and, and all of this stuff. Well, Drew, I think some of the pros are exactly in your answer, right? Like, I think when you get a more technical focused case, it prompts students to learn about something you might not otherwise, right? Like my senior year case was Neptune and I learned more about scuba diving that year than I probably ever would <laughs> if I hadn't had to try the Neptune case. Um, in regards to like our push in terms of ideas of why we wanted to do something expert heavy, I think it's because when you look at a technically minded case, a case that has a lot of technical parts, moving pieces, it really tests 
different aspects of advocacy, right? Uh, I mean, when we write a civil case, we think of obviously what's the case before, but we also think about the civil case that came before. And for us, that would be the Petrillo case. And the Petrillo case uh, was definitely a very narrative-focused case, right? A lot of emotions, but a lot of fun. But it's a lot about storytelling. Um, Sure, if folks wanted to go negligence per se, they could go a little bit more technical into pesticides. But majority teams weren't, and even if you went that route, you could definitely narrative it. Here, it really tests your skills to be able to take something that folks could spend a lifetime learning and trying to distill it into something that a jury, in this case, it's going to be, of course, the the mock trial judges, to understand. So I think a lot of the push and a lot of the interest in writing something expert-heavy really came from wanting to have students do something a little different. Um, Though I admit, like, obviously something technically heavy, expert heavy, um, does have some thoughts that you want to make sure. And for me, uh, anyone who knew me as a competitor, I was the character witness. And anyone who knows me as a coach or has seen the teams I coach, um, we like a little bit of color and we like to have a little bit of fun. So obviously, um, a big thing that I was personally keeping an eye on was trying to make sure that teams that enjoy having colorful character witnesses or folks who love to tell compelling stories still have those angles. And if you look at the case, there's ways to tell this case without really delving into the technical aspects, without having to call an expert. Um, Sure, it's probably an easier life if you do, but for teams that want that option, it was important for us to give teams that opportunity. Well, Sam, I, I can definitely say, not to, not to pull a deep cut here, but I can definitely say that anyone who says that Chicago is a program with character is not a lying liar who lies. So I, I can definitely confirm that. Uh, but Elise, I actually wanted to follow up on something that you mentioned. Uh, so you talked about sort of this inspiration for this case and like the, the YouTube rabbit hole and everything like that. And I really relate to that. You know, I, I write the high school cases for Maryland. And the last two years, mm-hmm. they've been based on my favorite podcast of all time and the Blair Witch Project. And it's just like, you kind of never know where these ideas come from. But I was just kind of curious from your perspective. Okay, so you hear that, you know, that Mayday call, and you're like, I want to write a mock trial case about it. But obviously, there's a lot of steps between that thought and actually writing a mock trial case about it. So how do you translate an idea like that from this is something that I discovered on a late night, you know, I should be sleeping YouTube rabbit hole and turn it into an idea that can actually like generate a case. That's a great question. Um, I think, first of all, you know, I am lucky enough, at least with this case, to have a little bit of a background in aviation law. It's one of the areas of practice I have at my firm. And so the idea of writing a case about a plane crash is something where on one hand, it's a huge undertaking. And on the other hand, I feel like I had a decent sense of how big of an undertaking it was going to be. Um, So I think from having the idea and having this idea of, okay, it's going to be a VFR and IFR conditions case. um, The first step is to just kind of start coming up with what are the most important exhibits and what are the most important witnesses. And then the next step, of course, is to immediately reach out to Sam because he's an amazing case author. And anytime I ever would have a a proposal idea, he's a person I would want to run it by because I think, you know, while ultimately we ended up scrapping the case uh, two years ago, his case proposal is one of the best case proposals I've ever seen. Um, I think he just has an incredible, incredible eye for like 
coming up with how should the witness scheme work? Like how should the metagame of this case work? And so workshopping this case proposal with him was honestly one of the most helpful things. Well, that perfectly sets me up for my next question. So let's move to that next question. Obviously, you know, we've kind of discussed the initial genesis of this case and how the initial idea came to be. But you all are civil committee, civil committee case chairs together for the first time. And of course, you've worked together before, but you're you're in charge, right? You're 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 stepping up for for Mike Gelfand, who led the committee for the last couple of cycles. So can you take us through kind of the working relationship when you have co-chairs? Obviously, you have the whole committee and we'll kind of get into that. But how did you approach the process of working together as co-chairs to lead this group uh, in generating this case? I mean, I think the big thing is obviously we were we were taking the ship over from Mike Gelfand, who uh, is the guy who taught me how to write cases. So I, it was not going to be an easy feat, but it was infinitely easier having Elise by my side to help out with all these things. And I think in terms of how we figured out a working relationship, I think it definitely helped that the two of us had worked together on a case committee before. Um, and I think the big thing was mostly, particularly with this given case, I think our strengths helped to play a certain role into it. Um, as Elise has said, uh, she knows things about aviation law. She's underselling it. Um, her knowledge of this topic, especially before we got started on this, um, was immense. Um, versus me, I could tell you planes go in the sky and they come down eventually. Um, I've been on a plane. Um, that was probably my experience when it came to aviation. So, I mean, uh, Elise was immensely involved when it came to a lot of like the groundwork in terms of figuring out how the law would work in this situation in terms of the technical aspects. And yeah, I mean, my specialty, I think, was more so like crafting meta, crafting like case theories, making sure witnesses like cross points. So I think when it came to splitting it up, um, a lot of it came from Elise and I definitely having dozens upon dozens upon dozens of like uh, text threads at random hours in the day, uh, just trying to figure out exactly how to make the case work. If issues came up, just to chat. I think uh, I remember she and I literally just hopping on a call while I was like cooking dinner, just so we could chat about exactly what was going on with the case, if what we wanted to change about it. Um, so a lot of it was that naturally just came that she had a lot of the technical knowledge and I was bringing a lot of my like, quote unquote, fun aspects of like craziness and crazy ideas. Anything that feels like we were pushing realism definitely came from me. <laughs> Anything that feels realistic was definitely uh, Elise pulling it off. Um, in regards to working with the committee, I think it kind of naturally stretched into that. Um, Elise was huge when it came to getting things started um, setting up like timelines and getting things sorted. And then I did a lot more of the back end thing. So as folks, just like every year, different members of the committee are assigned different parts so that everyone has something they can point to. Um, I did a lot of the back end work to make sure that all the pieces fit together, highlighted inconsistencies. And like, you know, if there were inconsistencies that were intentional, we kept them. If they weren't intentional, we fixed them. And I think that's kind of how we really made it work. We made sure that we kept in contact with each other. Uh, Elise helped to set up a lot of the things that proved successful. And then I just kind of did a lot of the back end wrap up work, um, playing to our strengths and making sure together we could pull this off. And ultimately it was great because 
for anyone who has chaired a case committee, they will undoubtedly tell you it is a crazy amount of work. Mm-hmm. Um, even with a crow chair, it is a crazy amount of work, mm-hmm. but it is significantly more manageable when you know there's someone else who's got your back on that front. So Elise, from, from your perspective, you know, how do you react to, to Sam's description and how did you see things in terms of y'all working together and working with the committee from, from your side of things? Yeah, I, I actually think he nailed it. Um, I think like a lot of where I was able to really guide this committee had to do with the subject matter. Um, I think, you know, one of the things that Sam and I frequently like disagree on a little bit is I like really dark cases that are very realistic and technical. Um, whereas Sam likes really fun cases. And so I think having both of us together, uh, means that we ended up with a final product that is very much, it's technical. It is a really difficult fact pattern, but it is also something where I think people will be able to have a lot of fun with it. And I think that's awesome. Well, I think that this kind of alludes to a, you know, point about the balance of a case and you just were sort of talking about the balance between it being fun and serious but there's also the natural balance of it being you know p and d and making sure that there's an even balance there um i'm kind of curious as like a approaching starting the case what the best way to do it is you know obviously we've got the affirmative defenses in there but what was the approach to making sure this case was balanced and let's give the caveat to this of we know there have been lots of conversations in all the various forums about how it's so sided and it's impossible for defense and somehow defense always ends up doing fine so we know it'll it'll be fine in the long run but i'm curious as to what you guys thought of that and we've had sam go first a few times so elise i'm gonna hop back to you how did you approach balance Oh, I was actually going to say Sam should go first on this one, definitely. Because the thing about Sam is that he absolutely hates the defense (laughs) um, and he should have to justify himself. (laughs) Okay, well, in that case, Sam, you got to go now. (laughs) All right. I mean, first, I need to address these allegations Um, with regards to the allegation that I hate the defense. That is true. I believe there is written communication within the committee in which I wrote, I hate the defense. So uh, that is there. You're aware this is being recorded, right? (laughs) Oh, I do. Uh, But it is all in jest. It's mostly in the sense that I think it's exactly as you say, Drew, and this is the point that I make when we discuss in committee and why I always joke that you need to really keep an eye towards weakening the defense is because the defense has nothing to prove at the end of the day, be it a civil case, be it a criminal case. There is nothing for defense to prove. A defense is enough to just poke holes in a plaintiff case. And I mean, as we've all discussed already, this is a technical case, right? Part of the plaintiff's burden isn't just to prove negligence. Uh, Part of the plaintiff's burden in this case that is not written is to explain how planes work uh, in those three witnesses in their 25 minutes direct. Um, They also, to the extent that they rely on the technical aspects, it is on the plaintiff to make things make sense. If uh, teams do a round and at the end of the trial, the judges are confused as to what happened. I mean, in a normal case, that means the defense is in a good position. Um, in addition to that, uh, as chair of the analysis committee, we've, we've seen the data year in and year out. Uh, defenses get stronger as the year goes on. Even within a round, judges score higher as a trial goes on. 
Um, and since defense has most of their points at the end of a trial, defense, if both teams are held equal, the defense has a bias just by the way judges score around. They're more conservative at the beginning because they don't know whether they should give high scores. And by the time they give the high scores, well, defense is going to get most <laughs> of them. Uh, so, like, there's a lot of things that are in favor of the defense. Um, so as a result, when you're writing a case packet, the case packet as a whole, similar to, I think this is Justin Bernstein's philosophy that I've carried over, when you read an entire case packet, it should read like the P, be it plaintiff or prosecution, wins. Um, because if the whole case packet doesn't read that way, you're probably going to have a defense bias. Because when folks look at a case, they're looking at all the witnesses, all the exhibits, all the stipulations. But what the judges see are three witnesses in 25 minutes with whatever exhibits you get and whatever arguments you make. And that is a huge balance for the defense. So writing a case with a P bias helps the P make decisions. And then the defense, as time will go on, will find ways to poke holes. Uh, That all being said, uh, to defense somewhat with this case... Uh, It's not like we left the defense without anything. We actually gave the defense quite a few options because I think Elise and I, while we disagree on some things with regards to cases, we both really like giving students options. Absolutely. In this case, the defense has several options. You can run a normal defense um, that the plaintiff didn't meet their burden. You can run um, an assumption of risk defense. You can run three separate intervening and superseding causation defenses. Um, That is five defenses right there. And like, that is just overarching, right? If you wanted to break that down into finer details, there's probably alternative ways to prove each of those defenses. Um, So we decided to definitely give defense plenty of options. Um, Head to head, do we give the defenses some weaknesses that they have to work around? Absolutely. But it's currently September 30th as we're recording this. Regionals ain't till February. So teams are going to have five months to figure out every single defense hole that our committee didn't figure out. And so we have to build into that. Yeah, I mean, I think that all makes a lot of sense. But Elise, I will, I'll kind of toss it back to you. Um, obviously, you've written many other cases. Do you feel like this approach that Sam is talking about is a similar one to what you've normally experienced? And, and what was your take on it? Do you feel like um, that's the right way to balance a case? Do you feel like um, this is the way you you wanted it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I for me, the best way to try and balance a case is to have a whole lot of facts on both sides, but more on the plaintiff or prosecution side. Um, I too will reference Justin Bernstein. When I was working with him on the All-Star Bracket Challenge case, I had written a police officer who had some like, pretty glaring deficiencies in their investigation who, you know, I wanted that to be a cross plate for. And Justin called me um, because he was the person I was working for. And he was like, Elise, you know, you can't write a cop like this. If you are going to have a police officer, you need to try to make them as bulletproof as possible because no matter how good of a job you do, the defense is going to find stuff that he did not do that they are going to cross him on. So you don't even need to think about giving them anything. 
Um, and I think that, you know, since that conversation that's absolutely shaped the way that I think about writing cases and the way I think about writing kind of any experts um, or investigative witnesses on the uh, plaintiff or prosecution side. Um, and I think, you know, just my thoughts on case balance as a whole, honestly. Well, I think that the the approach that both of you take to it, I think, is one that we've heard as a similar trend with so many of other case writers. And it makes a lot of sense. And I think, um, Sam, to go back to what you said, I, I do think that there are defense biases just within um, the way that mock trial is done and the timing of it all that are, are pretty unavoidable. So a lot of this makes a lot of sense to me. To kind of change gears a little bit to talk more specifically about this case and away from the writing process... I want to talk about a decision that you guys have made that, at least in recent memory, is a pretty new one, and that is to have two uh, affidavitless witnesses that are not constrained by an affidavit. You've got a, a deposed witness on both sides, and I'm kind of, and this is actually something that I will, as a you know, kind of shout out. This is something we discussed a lot um, during our conversation, um, our, our Zoom conversation with some of our Patreons, and there were a lot of uh, of voices that were intrigued by it. And I think it's something that a lot of people are wondering about, but why have two um, unconstrained witnesses uh, in this case? And I guess, um, Elise, I know you just spoke, but I'm going to come back to you on this one. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I think, first of all, this has been done before. It was in Winter versus TBD. Both Riley Winter and Sawyer Shaw were um, deposition witnesses who weren't bound by the fact of mention rule. And that was my senior year case. And I thought that that case was really fun. I thought that, you know, obviously people have different feelings about whether age discrimination is as fun as, you know, something where somebody died or whatever. But it ultimately, I thought, was a really interesting challenge to figure out how on the plaintiff, when you get to prepare everything your way anyway, um, how can you kind of use the lack of constraint in the deposition to support your case. And then obviously then you get to defense and it's a question of how can you now with a unconstrained defendant, Sawyer Shaw, come up with ways to rebut whatever they just made up on their case in chief. Um, I thought that that was a, a really, really interesting challenge. It forced teams on the defense to adapt a lot. Um, and so I, I think it makes the case more fun and, and more interesting. Um, Plus, you know, when I was uh, when I was a student, I did most of my attorneying on the plaintiff, and so uh, it's always nice to give a little bit to the plaintiff's attorneys of the fun of invention. All right, Sam. Same to you. What do you think? What was the uh, the reasoning for you? And I will I will also add that I did love the the Winter vs. TBD case, so that's a great shout out, Elise. Yeah, no, uh, I mean, exactly as Elise said, uh, Winter v. TBD did it, um, but so did uh, MTS versus Danny Kozak. Uh, Alex Grace on the plaintiff was a deposition witness. And of course, everyone's favorite animal trainer, Danny Kozak, was a dep witness for the defense. Um, actually, with the exception of uh, Petrillo last year, the last of the four cases, three of them have done uh, plaintiff and defendant uh, deps. Um, I think in terms of why is exactly as Elise said. I think it's it's an interesting play for the plaintiff. Um looping it to our discussion for case balance, right? We write a lot more facts for plaintiff than defense to balance it out. Um, so when you've got a lot of facts already in your favor, there is an interesting calculus about inventing 
additional facts. I think there's also an interesting balance when it comes to inventing on plaintiff versus inventing on defense when you think about who has the burden of proof on certain things. And I think those are a lot of interesting ways to play with a case and keep it fresh for students to enjoy. Plus, uh, when it comes to places where we give student freedom to invent, um, personally, I'm just intrigued to find out what students can come up with that Elise, myself, and the rest of the committee never imagined in a million years. You know, Sam, something you just said there, I, I want to just sort of ask you a follow-up question on that before we talk about something else. It struck me, it reminded me of something that Neil Schuett said the last time that we had him on. I forget if it was Drew or I, but one of us basically asked him like, hey, when you're writing a witness who's not constrained by an affidavit, like, is that scary? Is it scary to think that you might write this thing and then someone's just going to come up with the craziest thing imaginable and just go so far down a rabbit hole that you never could have imagined? So how do you approach writing, whether it's a, you know, a, a plaintiff or a defendant, but, but a deposition witness who's not affidavit constrained in terms of how tightly you bind that witness, how thoroughly you try to encompass that information and where you try to leave those gaps so that the witness has space to invent, but maybe like, like can't invent space aliens or something that would just like totally break the case. So um, at least my take, and um, I'd be interested to even hear what Elise thinks in terms of this one, the way I look at it when it comes to writing or like finalizing a deaf witness is the first thing you want to know is what you want the witness to be beholden to. So obviously that's going to be the answers to the questions that they give, right? Like these are the facts we think the witness needs to be held to. Um, in through stipulations or through some of the questions, we also then try to keep out some of the problematic case theories that while we're optimistic, the vast majority of the students that compete will not do. To make sure that we avoid those, we add some guardrails for certain topics and certain triggers. Um, after that, I think, at least for me, I like to leave a broad range of wiggle room for folks to invent. In per prior cases, if we wanted to give them limited room in certain aspects, we might, again, further curtail. But for the large part, the fun of a deposition is for folks to invent. Um, in regards to your space invaders uh, theory, Ben, <laughs> I mean, assuming there is nothing that we have written that prevents it, I think what we think would prevent students from trying to run it is, hey, if you convince a panel of judges that the space invaders theory is the better theory in the courtroom and you win the ballot on that, what are we to say about that? <laughs> I, have, uh, I have previously judged rounds where teams have run some of the most bizarre, crazy theories I never in a million years thought I would see um, in the years of deposition witnesses. And they still won my ballot just because everything else they did was um, scored higher than the other team. Even if I, for the points deducted for their crazy theory, they still won my ballot. So for me, I'm like, it's more power to you if you win with a crazy theory. But you're going to have to convince the judges of that first. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, this was kind of a follow-up, but but Elise, I'd be interested in your thoughts on it. What what do you think in terms of approaching how to balance the invention constraints of a deposition witness? Yeah, so you use the word scared. And, you know, the, the only thing I'm ever scared of when I release a case is that people won't like it. <laughs> um, as long as people are enjoying it and having fun, 
then the case has been a success. Obviously, we have lots of other things that we want to succeed on, like not having a ridiculous imbalance on one side or the other. But ultimately, this is an educational activity. And, you know, I want everybody to have fun. Uh, if your team is running a space alien theory, please call me. I would like to watch. I would love to judge that round. That would make me happy. Um, <laughs> sounds crazy, but, <laughs> you know, um, I think that's part of it is I want people to be able to come up with really, really wacky, zany theories that are based on, you know, maybe just a couple of lines in one affidavit and you need to give it some corroboration or something. Um, I think one of the most powerful things you can do with an inventing witness is, is just corroborating the other witnesses, trying to tell a more cohesive story. Um, and especially from that perspective, I, I want to give people a lot of freedom. Um, I think obviously I, I agree with Sam on, you need to have a few core facts and a few core things that are clearly in there, clearly impeachable, clearly, obviously uncontradictable that, you know, even a really inexperienced plaintiff's attorney or defense attorney can cross on. But ultimately, I see invention witnesses as a challenge for attorneys to show up and cross them on their direct and cross them on what they've said on the stand and why that's ridiculous given the rest of the facts in the case, especially because, you know, they're going to be in the courtroom, they're going to hear everybody else. Um, and so, you know, it's it's not something I worry about too much. Uh, and the other thing is, with the exception of pre-orcs case changes, there's always more case changes. If something gets really out of hand, we can always fix it later. Hmm. Yeah, no, that and that last point is a really, really fair one. Like, we have this system of case changes in place, you know, for that exact reason. So let me ask about another aspect of this case that I think has has generated some conversation and has been really interesting, and that's affirmative defenses. You guys have mentioned that already, but I want to get a little bit more specific. So I sort of have a two-part question related to affirmative defenses, and, and Sam, I'll, I'll go to you first on this one. So uh, I think there's like a lot of interesting considerations with affirmative defenses, but affirmative defenses in a civil case, I think, presents a, an interesting dichotomy when you're putting together a case and some of the balance considerations. So how did you all decide, okay, we want to have affirmative defenses in this case to begin with, because you don't always see that in AMTA cases. And then specifically, how did you balance the, the knowledge that, okay, if the defense is doing an affirmative defense, they have to prove something. How did you balance that with the knowledge that the defense by its nature needs to have a little bit less to work with for the balance considerations that you guys were talking about earlier? Uh, so how did you sort of think about, all right, we have affirmative defenses here, but also we need to make sure that the case is, is P&D balanced from a competitive standpoint and how you manage to look at both of those things together? Sure, absolutely. So, I mean, first, in terms of the fact that we had affirmative defenses, that was definitely a discussion that Elise and I had together and also was a discussion that we had as a committee as a whole. So together we discussed it was mostly is in terms of, as Elise said, she likes realistic and factual cases. So obviously, if affirmative defenses are things that happen in actual aviation cases, we wanted to have some semblance of that in this case. Um, as a committee as a whole, we also discussed what ideas um, that we wanted to do, what potential case theories 
defense we wanted to have as an option, including affirmative defenses. And in fact, it was through the committee as a whole discussion that we came up with the fireworks affirmative defense. That was a creation of a bunch of minds in a room spitballing potential ideas. So part of it came from wanting to mimic reality. And part of it was, hey, we're doing a 4th of July case. Fireworks make sense. Uh, So there was a lot of organic development in terms of them being there. In terms of balance, I mean, um, like I said, I give defense a tough break a lot. But the thing is, we want to give defense options, right? Like, it's sure you could theoretically write a very balanced case in which all defense is doing is putting out plaintiff fires. Plaintiff proves X, defense shows it's not X, et cetera, et cetera. But we wanted to make sure that defense, similar to plaintiff, had a lot of options, a lot of play. Um, the case comes out, right, August 15th. And then this is the case folks are going to be playing with till March. We want to give defenses ample things to play around with. The other thing that it helps is if you give defense options, that also means that the plaintiff has more to deal with. If plaintiff only has to deal with one defense theory, then even plaintiff crosses over time is going to get stale. Like it's going to be the same cross trial after trial. Every weekend you compete, you're going to see the same exact cross four rounds in a row. By giving defenses options, it means not only defense gets to spice it up, but plaintiff also has to stay on their toes. In terms of balance, frankly, we treated it not too dissimilar from normal. Sure, they have something to prove. So as a result, you do want to build things into the case for defense to point into. And that's why they've got witnesses who have facts, whichever affirmative defense the defense decides Uh, We as a committee have given them something they can point to. Um, There is no defense here that would have completely been thrown out on a summary judgment motion, for example. Um, With regards to making sure that we don't overpower the defense, um, I think it's part of it is, yes, if you compare head to head, the defense probably has a little less than plaintiff overall. But we find from experience that's okay. Um, If I reflect back to the MTS versus Kozak case, uh, for those of your viewers who aren't aware, that was a cross-claims case. Um, The plaintiff sued the defense for negligence. The defense also sued the plaintiff for negligence and had to prove negligence, meaning the defense had the exact same burden as the plaintiff. And we gave the defense less, significantly less than the plaintiff to prove their case. But then by the time works came around, defense was winning significantly more balance. And I think the Kozak case was a good was a, a good learning experience to show that even if you give the defense a burden, and even if you force the defense to pursue that burden, judges naturally are still going to give the leg to the defense, because I think we naturally see the defense as the party without anything to prove. So yes, I think defenses will need to prove things. But I also think even if they prove it less than the plaintiff, the way mock trial shakes out in practice, still enough for the defense to make it stand. That, that's really interesting. Um, Elise, you know, uh, Sam sort of alluded to the work that you all did together and with the committee on developing the affirmative defenses and how you put those together. So from your perspective, how did that come together? And, and what's your philosophy on balancing affirmative defenses with making sure that the actual competitive case balance stays intact? I think one important thing to remember when we're talking about like a true affirmative defense is that when a defense runs an affirmative defense, they no longer have to necessarily dispute the elements of 
the tort or claim that the plaintiff is bringing. So if you are running a defense of assumption of risk, you no longer really have to dispute negligence the same way because what you're saying is he assumed the risk of my negligence. So whatever they're saying doesn't matter. Um, And so from that perspective, I think affirmative defenses can be a little bit self-balancing just because, you know, you don't have to worry about what they're saying as much. And you have the opportunity to really make the trial your own circus, your own show of what you really want to talk about. Um, And I think, you know, when you look at uh, the various different teams that are really, really, really successful, a lot of times that is how really successful defenses are run. Um, I think as far as everything coming together, I I agree with Sam. We all were either in a room or on a Zoom call all together and just brainstormed a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, I will disagree with Sam from the perspective of basically as soon as we decided this is going to be 4th of July, Sam was like, we should have a fireworks defense. (laughs) And he lobbied for that until he made it happen. Uh, But other than that, I think everything he said was accurate. (laughs) Others supported my decision. That's absolutely true. Uh, But that was definitely a a, a Sam Jahangir uh, thing that he personally like that's his baby. I feel like it's the fireworks defense. <laughs> right. And uh, any defense that we like was one of the two or two of you. Any we don't, we'll just say Dipolito came up with that one uh, and it'll <laughs> be fine. Um, okay. So Elise, I, I want to stick with you because I've been excited to ask you this question since you talked about oh, the origin of the case. And that is, I want to, <laughs> I want to talk about that audio exhibit. So um I'm curious, you know, sort of how you all decided to have an audio exhibit and and how you feel like the exhibit came out in, ter- in terms of comparison to, to the idea that generated the case. And of course, with that, I'm sure that you all scoured the earth for voice actors and just tried to find the, the greatest <laughs> voice actors that you could imagine. So how did you settle upon uh, the two stupendous actors that you that you ultimately went with? Yeah, well, so initially, I was just like, I want this to be a case teaser. I hadn't even thought about whether or not it should be an exhibit. Uh, Obviously, we decided to include it because I think there are things in that exhibit that are relevant, uh, that are important to the case, and things that, you know, the pilot's saying that are ambiguous and interesting to discuss as we are trying to figure out what happened and what brought this plane down. Uh, From the voice actor's perspective... (laughs) Um, we knew we wanted to have Jonathan help out. Um, I know Jonathan has, I think, done some aviation work. At least that's what he's told me. I know he was really excited about the plane crash idea. Uh, and he was like, I don't want to be the pilot, though. I want to do the air traffic control. And he was able to, you know, he knew that it needed to be uh, Mike Tango as opposed to MT. Like, he was absolutely ready to go with the aviation lingo. Uh, we asked Brandon to do it because we were brainstorming, like, who would be a fun AMTA person who would also do a good job? And we had a lot of ideas. You know, everybody in AMTA is super dramatic, obviously. Um, but especially having it being the outgoing president and the incoming president was just too good of an opportunity to pass up. And I think they both did a really good job with it. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Like, my my joke earlier was not meant to imply that they didn't. I think it's a really cool exhibit. Um, when we had Jonathan on, he talked about being... Uh, a bit of a commercial aviation nerd. And I think that side uh, came through loud and clear. Um, but let me just ask this as, as one follow-up. So I'm just curious, um, I guess, Elise, I'll ask you this, and or maybe Sam has the answer. But at the time that we heard this audio exhibit back in, I guess it would have been in April for the national championship, 
were you all still unsure whether or not it was going in the case or had you known, did you know at that point that it was definitely going to be in the final product? I didn't know if it was going in the case at that point. I I assumed we would have some sort of a transcript. I didn't know if it would be a cockpit voice recorder transcript or just the Mayday call transcript, um, or if we would be including the actual audio. Um, But I knew that some version of that would likely end up in the case, but not necessarily that specific exhibit. Well, staying on the general idea of the exhibits we have, I I wanted to ask about a few others. And in particular, I want to start with some of the potentially physical exhibits. So both Exhibit 14 and Exhibit 8, that's the pill bottle and the pilot license. Um, The option is given if if teams want to basically make it, it into a physical exhibit. And I'm I was really excited to see that this was included in the case because you know, as someone that only competed in in-person competitions, that was usually a large aspect of it. I remember the extension cord in Dylan Hendricks that we've talked about a lot, um, the brick that was added to that case, um, and the briefcases in Bancroft. Like there are there have just been so many iconic physical pieces of evidence um, through the years, and I'm, I loved seeing that come back. And it's obviously been something that I think a lot of people feel like was kind of missing. When we did virtual mock trial, so I'm I'm curious to you guys um, and Sam, I'll go to you first. What was the motivation by um, wanting to include physical exhibits again, and then uh, what what made you decide on those two in particular? So credit over credits due. This is Mike DiPolito is probably the reason why teams can be enjoying so many physical exhibits. Um, Mike was the one who pitched the prescription label. Um, And when Mike pitched the prescription label, he included a pitch of, hey, this might be a fun exhibit that we could make physical. And um, he did the legwork. He's the one who came up with the parameters, made, designed it and figured it out so that we could have a version that teams could use. And so when we created the proofreader copy of this case, so taking a step back, a little inside baseball, um, (laughs) we take a lot of the preliminary pieces, we put it into a proofreader copy and we send it to all the proofreaders. Um, the list of which is in the case and all the folks who are instrumental in making sure they catch things or give us suggestions we didn't think of. Um, They saw when the proofreaders received it, a couple of them noted the prescription label and their feedback was, hey, you've got a prescription label. Why not turn some of the other exhibits into physical exhibits? And one specifically subjects the pilot's license. And we're like, that's a great idea. So um, I think it was one of those is that someone pitched a physical exhibit And it prompted others to say, what else could we turn into something physical for students to use? And that developed into all of the physical exhibits we had. We turned what made sense to be physical, physical. As for what it makes sense for students to have, I think it's the benefit is exactly, as you said, Drew, right? We're knocking on wood as I say it, aiming for a season of in-person mock trial. Uh, We're going to be back in person. And there's definitely a very different feel about that. But one of the lost feelings from virtual is like actually physically handling exhibits and holding them. And I think we wanted to have that aspect in this case. And like we definitely brainstormed and thought, was there anything else that made sense to add? But ultimately, I think we settled on these pieces of exhibits that teams could then use. uh, But we also included for teams that didn't want to versions that would make sense to just hold up as paper. But I think it was mostly that. It's that it really started as an idea that uh, DiPolito proposed, and then it kind of expanded into the version we see now, and I couldn't be happier because I think it's going to be fun for students to play around with those physical exhibits come try. 
I, I want to talk about some of the photos that you guys have in the case. Um, I'm, I think it's mostly exhibits five and six, if I'm not mistaken, that are kind of the photos of the plane crash, um, of the, the broken lights. Um, what was, like, how did you guys go about finding those? Um, you know, my assumption is that, like, there's a lot of Google searches, but, like, finding ones that fit the tone, right, that you wanted to use, ones that aren't going to be maybe too graphic um, to the point of being distracting, but what was the motivation behind choosing those photos in particular? Yeah. So first of all, uh, I want to shout out Brian Olson because he was an absolute hero in finding us photos. Uh, the backstory on some of the photos is that we went through, I think, three or four different iterations of which plain photos we were going to use. Um you can find anything on the internet, but it is sometimes difficult to find things that are free to use mm. under whatever license they're listed under on the internet. Uh, and so, you know, especially when you have specific qualities that a plane needs to have. So I think we had a set of photos initially, but it ended up being a like a twin engine plane as opposed to a single engine plane. And it was easy enough to tell that despite the extensive damage to the plane that we didn't want to use those. Then we got a second set of photos. There was a license problem. You know, it's always something. And um, I think ultimately the best thing that you can do in that situation is have a really good team and have uh, a bunch of people who are dedicated to finding something that is both legal to use and not going to get you sued and <laughs> accurate to what you want the case to be. Uh, and so I want to shout out uh, Brian for that. That makes a lot of sense. I, as someone that hasn't had to go through that process, I can't really, but I'm sure Ben, you probably can. Yeah. It's, I, I'll just add this really quick. I, I know that struggle last year I wrote a case and I had some photos in mind and I was like, I'm sure I'll be able to find photos like this. Um, I did not end up finding the photos that I needed. And I had to rewrite the case at the 11th hour to like fit, the decent photos that I could find. So I know that struggle. It's very difficult. One time I had to find dental records. Ah, yeah, I, I know exactly. You've seen that yep, case. I coached that case. I know exactly <laughs> yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah, no, I mean, even for this one, I think the one fun thing for this case was, as Elise said, we had to go through a lot of iterations and props to Brian for finding us the ones we were able to use. But one thing that helped us is I think we did a preliminary search for what types of photos we could find. Cause I mean, before we looked, one of the first things we did was look for potential photos. Cause before that, like we weren't sure if the plane was going to crash into a mountain into just a forest underwater. But when we looked at pictures, we saw most of them were like foresty mountain areas. So we're like, well, it makes sense to write in that general vicinity. And then it's exactly as Elise put it is that then it was finding the exact right set of photos that fit particularly regarding any of the facts that we wanted students to argue, you don't want photos that go 180 degrees from that. Well, I think that that all makes a lot of sense. And I mean, I think that the photos you guys have chosen look pretty good. They look realistic and like they fit a lot of what we have described in the case. So it makes a lot of sense. Um, one last thing I, I want to address, though, is the the call order specifically. Like, I think that it's part of the whole metagaming uh, that Sam, you kind of alluded to um, of just like, how is this case going to run? How are we going to control things? How do we want to give a lot of options as you both have talked about a lot? Um, and so the call order is that the P side plaintiff gets the first call and then there are two calls from the defense, then PDP and 
I think for the most part, the last three are going to be the side constrained ones. I could be wrong, but that's my guess. Um, but for the most part, plaintiff gets the first choice, then defense gets two. At least in my experience, I feel like oftentimes it either goes back and forth, back and forth, and you kind of give defense um, the second call and they only get one. In this case, you guys have given them two in a row. Um, so I'm kind of curious, like what was the motivation behind doing it that way and giving defense that two in a row? And then I think most people can probably guess, but go ahead and just explain like why give P the very first choice too. And um, Sam, why don't we go to you first? Sure. And it probably makes sense for me to go for because I was the one who pushed for this particular call order when we were discussing and the rest of the committee was on board. It's starting with P first, and then I'll go for the two Ds. So with regards to P first, I think that's just kind of standard tradition when it comes to cases such as these. Uh, when there's swing witnesses, usually giving P the first option gives plaintiff generally a guaranteed swing witness. So when you're thinking of things like case balance and case preparation, what we generally find is that most teams in general try to tend to, if possible, prepare as few witnesses as possible. I think that makes obvious sense to anyone who has competed or coached. Less work is better than more work. Um, but I think we've definitely seen, particularly when it comes to plaintiff and prosecution, the teams that have, the sides that have a burden, they more so than defense even tend to try for guaranteed calls. So giving P the first option, I think, gives plaintiffs a chance to consider the swing witnesses, incorporate the swing witnesses, and frankly, we're more realistically going to see swing witnesses used by plaintiff if it's the first option versus if not. Um, as for the defense, um, the defense getting the second bite makes sense, right? Plaintiff got first, defense gets second. Um, the big decision was who gets the third bite, and we decided defense again. And I think the big push there is honestly it was to give the defense flexibility and options, right? Um, there are three defense-constrained witnesses, meaning you're free to call the three defense-constrained witnesses and have a guaranteed call. But we acknowledge it's a deposition witness and two experts. Most teams or some teams will not be interested in wanting to call two experts. Um, I also said I wanted a case where you could try it without experts. So I wanted the defense to also have the option to call no experts. But how do you make sure that they have the option to call no experts? Well, with three swing witnesses, if you give them the second and third bite, you can call the deposition witness and two of the swings, uh, meaning you never have to call the expert if you don't want to. Or conversely, if you want to call the expert and two swings, you can. So we ultimately saddled on those first three picks so that plaintiff has their option like normal, but mostly importantly, it's actually... I've joked enough on being anti-defense. This was bigly, this was largely for the defense, was so that the defense would be able to have options on who to call. If you want to stick with your side-constrained witnesses, you're absolutely free to. But for teams that want to prep those swing witnesses, we want to give them ample opportunity to call them and call multiple of them if they so desire. Well, Elise, I'll, I'll throw it to you. What was your take on the, the call order? And were you convinced by Sam? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think when you have only three side constrained witnesses on the defense and two of them are experts and they're not necessarily experts that cleanly support the same case theory, you definitely want to give the defense a little bit more uh, 
flexibility when it comes to the call order. Um, I think here, as Sam said, basically what this means is if the defense preps just four witnesses, they should be able to get two swings. They should be able to get one swing and two side constrained witnesses. Um, and obviously they can just prep three witnesses if, if they want to do as, as little work as possible and, and call two experts. Uh, but I think here, you know, it's, it's really a balance between not necessarily wanting to do the Bancroft Covington thing of having the defense prep a mountain of content that won't necessarily be used while also wanting to reward teams who are willing to do a little bit of extra work. Yeah, I think both of your approaches to this make a lot of sense. I remember when I started reading the case and looked at the call order, I was like, oh, okay, like that fits really well. I think if defense had the first call and was able to lock in a swing, it would feel kind of strange. Uh, so I like it. I think, you know, you, you you as a defense, you really only have to prep one extra witness and that's really doable. So uh, I think that makes a ton of sense. So I'm going to ask one last question to each of you here to wrap us up. This has been such a fascinating conversation. I feel like I've learned a lot just about case writing and, and how this process works from both of you. So obviously now your case has been released out into the world. By the time this episode is out in, in about a week from when we're recording it, We'll be just up against the first set of invitationals. So Elise, I'll go to you first, and then Sam, I'll ask you this uh, as sort of our last question. What are you excited to see play out with this case? You guys obviously spent months and months and months with the whole committee and your proofreaders crafting this case and putting all these ideas and efforts into this case. So what are you looking for and paying attention to in terms of, wow, I'm really excited to see how teams use that piece of evidence or, or what characters they run with that witness? Uh, you know, what are you looking forward to seeing as your case goes out into the world and the whole community starts to use it in trial? Oh my gosh, that's a really good question. <laughs> um, I mean, here's the thing. First of all, anytime you've written a case and you see it run, even if people do horribly with it, it is so fun and exciting and rewarding. Yeah. Um, I can't help but give higher scores on a case I wrote because I'm just so happy to be there and <laughs> be watching uh, people run my case. I think, you know, I did a lot of the work kind of conceptualizing the really technical plaintiff theories. And so I think I am the most excited to see people work with um, those theories. Uh, I, I wrote Sevchenko and I'm, I'm really, really excited to see that witness called. Um, and I'm also excited to see what people invent, like what we haven't thought of that students are going to do because inevitably that's going to happen. And that is honestly always one of the most impressive things to me is, is when a student or a group of students come up with something that I haven't thought of that totally works. Sam, I will, I will kick it to you to kind of wrap up our conversation. Same question that I asked Elise. What are you excited to see as this case goes out into the world? Yeah. I mean, like Elise, generally, it's going to be extremely fun to just see what crazy and creative ideas the community is going to come up with with the case, right? Um, I think as we're writing it, we're all brainstorming and contemplating potential ways this case can swerve left or swerve right, up or down. But I've my adage when it comes to case writing is um, the seven of us in a room are always going to be outthought by the community as a whole. So that's the general fun. If I had to pick like something a little bit more narrow, I feel like I'm having a small character arc on this 
uh, interview is that I'd say it's honestly is going to be the defenses. <laughs> uh, I am intrigued to see which of the defenses teams are going to be gravitating towards. I'm going to be interested in seeing how they play out those defenses um, in terms of witnesses. I had a large hand in writing the defense deposition for this case. So I have a little bit of love there and um, I'm going to be fun to just see which one folks pick, which one they gravitate towards. If they go for a single one, a combo of them, um, there's no limitation. So they could do anything they so desire on that front. Um, in terms of witness portrayals, I will admit I have a very soft spot for uh, Shannon Shaheed. Uh, I helped write that one. It was inspired by friends and family, so I am going to love to see that witness in an Amta-style universe, <laughs> uh, because I part of me is interested to see how crazy it goes, because part of me realizes that reality will probably be even be more absurd than whatever we see in a mock trial round. Yeah, I, I think you have definitely left lots of room for, uh, I'll say growth with that character. I, I think that's the, <laughs> the best term that I can use. Well, Sam Elise, this has been such an interesting conversation, just a fascinating opportunity to look behind the scenes about how this case was created. So thank you, obviously, for coming on the show. But thank you to both of you for dedicating the amount of time and attention that you do to create a case that I think has been pretty universally praised since it came out. And I think it's going to be really, really great. So Elise, Sam, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Thank you for having us. Oh, it's happy to be here. Yeah, it was really great to have both of you on the show. Uh, to everyone else, we really appreciate you listening. We hope that this was an interesting conversation for you. Uh, we'll be back in your feeds very soon. But until then, this has been The Mock Review with Ben and Drew.